Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. Thank you all so much for your support. I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to dropping this episode with Sanjay today. Please remember that the securities identified and described throughout this podcast do not represent all of the securities WCM purchased, sold, or recommended for client accounts. As a listener, you should not assume that an investment in the securities identified was or will be profitable. Please keep that in mind as you listen to Sanjay. I can't say enough good things about Sanjay and his outlook at the world. I'm really excited to drop this episode, and I really hope that as an investor and as a person, this episode does something for you because Sanjay is clearly a very good thinker and a very measured person. And he remains incredibly humble and understands what we're all up against in the market and the fact that the great managers of today can be forgotten tomorrow. And I just think that his humility is something that should be modeled by all. And I think he's got some really interesting thoughts on the industry in general. So I hope that you all benefit from the conversation. Again, I thank you so much for listening and I'm going to keep doing these as long as you guys like them. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. I'm joined by Sanjay Ayer from WCM. Sanjay is a portfolio manager. As always, none of this is investment advice. We're not your fiduciaries. We're not your investment advisors. You need to hire your own people for that. Nothing's a solicitation or invitation to buy or sell a security. You know the drill. So get your own advisor and do your own work. That's the number one thing because this is all entertainment. So with that... Sanjay, how you doing? Doing good, Bill. How are you? Congrats on the podcast. Thank you. It's been fun. Sanjay is a referral from Shomik. So that's how we met, right? That's right. Shomik. I've had the pleasure of meeting Shomik and uh, Mike P, non-GAAP. Oh, yeah. In real life. I know you've had both on the podcast. I mean, I'm preaching to the converted, but like great people just killing it at their craft just, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it's refreshing to see people like that in this industry who like truly think about relationships and yeah, it's not transactional. But yeah, that's how we met. Yeah. Well, the other referral is from Rishi, who has, he's the staple, the person that stapled in my brain, wealth games, not status games. And I know it's a Naval quote, but once he said it to me, it just stuck. So, <laughs> you know what? I think most of the guests that have been on the podcast, I feel really fortunate because I can say that my experience with all of them is exactly what you said. It's like not transactional. These are all people that I built up relationships with or are referred to through people that I built relationships with. And it's been fun to get to know the guest list. So I look forward to a good conversation here. Yeah, should be a blast. I was listening to Mike Trigg. Did you come over with Mike? I was listening on, on uh, the Capital Allocators podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my my life is pretty much Mike Trigg, like, delayed by one year. Okay. So I just followed him wherever he went. I started at Morningstar in Chicago. Him and I worked together for three and a half years, and then he moved out here. I did my own thing. I ended up quitting business school, um, and then I kept in contact with Mike, and he said, yeah, Sanjay, fly out to Laguna. Might be something here, and... Uh, yeah, from being from Connecticut, Laguna Beach seemed like a, a foreign country, but yeah, here we are. And the rest <laughs> is history. 
Yeah, where in Chicago did you live? Oh, I moved around. Yeah, I moved every year between high school and when I recently bought a house here in California. So Lincoln Park, Lakeview, downtown, I, I saw it all. Yeah, that's. Uh, I was division in Clybourne, and then I was on Mildred and Wrightwood, and then I went up to Wilmette for a while, and now I've found myself in Florida. There you go. <laughs> so how was the, uh, I mean, how was the Morningstar experience? I know that Mike was saying that he liked it, but you and him lamented that some of the, the way that they went about their business maybe missed growth companies a little bit more than you guys would hope. Is that a fair characterization or am I putting words in his mouth? I probably am. Yeah, no, I think at the time that's true. I'm sure they've evolved in my sense is they have evolved since then. But you know, if you were to look across the industry and say, where would you kind of want to start your career? I mean, I think Morningstar does a phenomenal job giving you kind of the right tools, at least a long-term mindset and at least a framework around competitive advantage. And it's up to you to maybe take it and run with it in any direction you'd like. But I think they did kind of have a bit of an issue with some of those tech companies and moats. But like all of us, we all kind of evolve and get better. Yeah, no doubt. I have now spoken to Todd Wenning. Was he there when you were there? I don't think we overlapped, no. Okay. You do know Heather Brilliant, though, yeah? Yes, yes. Yeah, so I'll be talking to her in not too long. And I have found everyone that has come out of Morningstar, I like how there is a common lens that you all see the world through that I think is probably a pretty good training ground there. Yeah, it's a pretty good training ground. It sounds like a really good alumni network at this point. A lot of people have left and had success, and a lot of great people I still know there, so... I haven't even checked the market cap recently, but they've done great things. They put out a good product. I find as a buy-sider, it's a pretty good sort of tear sheet to get just an overview on something, right? It's like, okay, well, this is... I like their moat ratings more than the conclusions necessarily, but I sort of like it to ramp up on where you may want to look. Yeah, the framework is, you know, I think it's the right one versus like being elsewhere where you're kind of absorbed with quarterly earnings and noise. I think it's a great place, definitely to start your career, but even beyond that. So one thing that Mike said that I thought was really interesting, did you come into WCM, when did you arrive? Like had assets sort of bottomed out and you were on the side of coming back or were you part of sort of the rethinking the process for lack of a better term? Yeah, it was the latter. I didn't, you know, it's funny. Sometimes uh, the less you know, the better off you are. When I joined, we were seeing poor performance, assets were declining, kind of right in the midst of the, you know, the most severe of the, of the decline. And, but, you know, being kind of young and naive, you kind of just think, okay, just pick a couple of good stocks. This will all, I'll just write the ship. But we were thrust into it and it's, it was great. And it's kind of like Morningstar. You're kind of given a lot of ownership and a lot of responsibility and it's up to you if you want to own it or not. So yeah, I came a year after Mike. So I I saw the dip, um, if you want to call it that. And the second act, if you will, which has been great. I think it objectively was a dip, but it sounds to me as though it got you all to a much better place on the back end of it. No question. No question. Yeah. There was something that he said that really resonated with me. He said that there were three decisions, buying Dell versus Apple, Yahoo versus Google, and eBay versus Amazon. And those are sort of decisions that if either one of those had gone the other way, maybe there would be a different conversation And I think the reason that smacked me over the head is that's exactly the kind of mistakes that I made when I started to invest. I thought, oh boy, this is, is he talking to me or what's going on? Uh, Yeah, I know. I think a lot of people in that kind of camp made that mistake and it was kind of taking a value, valuation first approach to tech. And I'm a big believer, I'm sure we'll talk about this, about like learning from mistakes and learning from other people's mistakes is great. 
But in a way, there's nothing matches like viscerally learning from your own mistakes, making them, seeing the, seeing the damage. I mean, those will forever be etched in your mind. But yeah, I think it's funny. You know, I think the industry as a whole doesn't really tolerate mistakes, but mistakes like that, if you can learn from them and you get a chance to apply those learnings, the results can be pretty magical. Yeah, I think uh, something that I have learned is if you are a little bit open, I mean, I'm I'm on my own, so most of my learning is through Twitter and whatnot, because that's sort of the community that I formed. If you're open with your mistakes, the amount of people that are there to help, as long as you sort of take down the veil of pomp, if I can uh, call it anything else, right? Like there's a lot of really good people in this industry want to help. I don't know if whether or not the anonymous dynamic on Twitter helps with that because people are maybe a little bit more willing to share mistakes as opposed to like put their professional reputation on the line. But I have found that rubbing my nose in mistakes publicly has been a pretty good thing for my learning. I came into this, I owned fantastic compounders such as Cleveland Cliffs. I like Sears for, I mean, I never owned it, but I did research on it. Hertz when Icon got involved. So I was really digging into the, uh, you, you know, the grungy stuff, so to speak. <laughs> so I, I, I have morphed. Yeah, yeah, a lot of us have. And I feel like the sin of this industry is it doesn't allow talent to discover itself. You know, a lot of people say there's no talent or, you know, is it skill, is it luck? We could talk about that and have fun conversation about that. But I think there is a lot of talent out there. It's just kind of sabotaged by just some of the stuff that happens in the industry. You mentioned pomp. I think that's definitely one of them. So why don't we talk about whether or not it's skill or luck? I mean, part of the issue is the trials are few and the resulting is easy, right? It's easy to look at people or uh, firms that have had sort of big years and you don't know, okay, is it for the right reason? And, and even myself, I mean, I had a pretty good year last year. I think I did a lot of things well, but I don't think I'm that good. And it's sort of hard to decipher how much is luck and how much is skill. So how do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, we all fall in the trap. If you want to learn about the profession or become great, we all study the big winners and look for commonalities among them and, and draw lessons from it. And I think we all intuitively know that's like, that's a pretty serious sample bias, right? <laughs> yeah. You're not talking all the quiet losers out there who probably employed the same strategy and just for luck or execution or what have you had a very different results. The quiet losers don't write books, right? Um, yeah. But I tell you what, yeah, I think... And so I'm a big believer that we all kind of underestimate the role of luck in, in all walks of life, but definitely investing. But I do think, you know, Peter Kaufman, you know, Peter Kaufman? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's a friend of Charlie Munger. And, you know, we, we've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times. He, he has one, one of, one of his many interesting ideas or concepts is, you know, this notion that if you want to have success in life and business in anything, you'll make sure to positively spring load your starting conditions. Hmm. And I thought that phrase is interesting. So positively spring load your starting conditions. And my hunch is if you do, if there is something that truly separates those big success stories from those who are less fortunate, it is that, you know, there's something there where they, their starting conditions were such that when luck, when fortune kind of went in their direction, they were able to kind of see it, connect the dots, pounce on it. And in many cases, like build something durable on top of that. And so like while WCM had a lot of issues, when I look at us, and this predated me, I do think, I think there were a few things in place, right? A few starting conditions that were positively spring-loaded in Kaufman's terms that, um, that gave us a chance, right? That gave us a chance to build something on top of it. So I think that's an interesting framework he has. 
Do you want to go through a little bit about the history? I mean, your your firm is so culture focused in the investments that you make, and my interpretation of what you went through internally is potentially why you put such a emphasis on the company's cultures that you're investing in. Is that fair? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I'll jump to the end, and and the question I I guess I'd ask you is what percentage of time effort, bandwidth in this profession goes towards one of the following two things. Number one is minimizing career risk. And number two is trying to sound smart. <laughs> if you just look around and really boil it down, <laughs> what percentage is that? I'm going to argue that's a pretty high number, right? Yeah. And I'll give you a story. I think this might be a fun one. So this is 10 years ago, 2000, December 2010. I'm in New York. I'm in a, you know, Young Brands. I'm at Young Brands as analyst day. It's KFC, um, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell. Oh, yeah. Yum Brands China is an incredible brand. I know, I know. KFC's. I used to bank chicken companies and oh. I during, yeah, chicken producers. So through that, I got to studying Yum China and I never realized that in China, KFC is a heralded brand almost like Apple is. Like they really love KFC in China. I had no idea about that. It's a luxury brand. Yeah. Um, no, it's not. That's not far from it. I'd love to learn more about that part of your life. But yeah, so you know, so Yum Brands, yeah, KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell are their core brands. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Taco Bell. We actually, um, my wife and I, like, she's a fanatic. Anytime we buy a house, like, it's one of the first filters is distance from the nearest Taco Bell. It's <laughs> a key toggle I like there. It. Anyhow, so yeah, we're at this analyst day. This is when WCM, like, we're not doing great performance wise. Um, it's been hired in part to help that. So we go through the analyst day, Pizza Hut, KFC present, uh, and then there's a break. So I go to grab a drink of water, look at my phone. Uh, one of the stocks I pitched was down like 40%, something like that, after hours. Oh, no. Yeah, so I'm just, it's it's bad, right? And so I'm just in a bad mood. Uh, I'm just down <laughs> on myself. So I go back into this analyst day, and Taco Bell management goes up and starts to present. They walk through their comps and their vision and all that. And then there's a moment where they go through like their product promotions, like their pipeline, and they start to put some like promos, some commercials up there. I think it was like the new Chalupa or Gordita, I forget. They put that promo up there. It's a couple minute video. And I find myself in the middle of it, like taking notes, right, about this new product. And there's just a moment there, Bill, where I just kind of stop and I almost have like an out-of-body experience, like looking at myself. <laughs> what I'm am like, I doing? <laughs> like, what is going on with my life? You know, I look around, there's like, yeah, what if an alien saw this, right? Like, all these smart people with, were in suits with MBA, CFA, every three-letter credential you could have, doing something that we all know. I mean, come on. Even if this product's a home run, it's like 2% of Taco Bell sales, which is 30% of Yum's profits for like one or two years, right? It's meaningless. If we're all caught in this trap, there can be moments like that that are epiphanies, right? Light bulb moments. Yeah. This was not that. <laughs> this was this, this was, despair. This was a feeling of a, being a fraud. It's like I was the one. I was the person back then who could like tell you, oh, why this was a waste of time. Like, hey, noise versus signal, all this fun stuff. It's like the guy who recommends everyone else to do meditation, but actually doesn't meditate. You know, mm. that's what I felt like. I'm, yeah. I was someone who was a fraud, and I just uh, I had a moment there, and I called Mike Trigg, and he kind of talked me down. He's like, all right, let's come come back to Laguna. Yeah, why don't Why don't you come back home? <laughs> we'll, we'll talk to you. <laughs> your love tear. <laughs> yeah, so this was like we call it now my midlife crisis. Oh, this is your Taco Bell midlife this crisis. This is my Taco Bell midlife crisis, and it led me to like a frankly, Bill, like a decade long journey of like peeling back the onion. Like clearly, there's something about this profession 
there's like a gravitational pull going on that had me, despite knowing all of that, still there. It led me to peeling, really just going back, like peeling back the onion while doing my day, my day, my day job, like figuring out like what's the root cause here of what's going on with this industry? Are there other industries like it? And the premise was if I could find those root causes, those would be the most kind of durable inefficiencies you could exploit. It's hmm. not philosophical. It's not process because those could be arbitraged away, right? Over a long enough time frame. If you can find those like root cause issues, you could potentially exploit those for a long time. And so that's really one of the journeys I've been on. So what are some of your findings on the journey? <laughs> I think there are certain professions, and investing is one of these, where I think you mentioned this, process and outcome are really hard to disentangle. And frankly, like talent's really hard to evaluate. And there's a couple things at play. I think you mentioned one of them already, like the feedback quality is poor. So like if you're a long-term investor, you have long feedback loops from when you make a decision and when you get the feedback, you don't have that many trials, right? You're not trading that often. And there's lots of noise. Like if you just do the calculation of feedback quality, it ranks very poor. So that's part of it. I think there's, a, there's no defined playbook on how to do your job. So you're totally unconstrained. And really the shortcut to finding these types of professions is when you often hear success stories attributed to like a, he's got it or she's got the magic touch. And you see that investing, you see it in um, like film studios, like when Michael Eisner, you know, his heyday, he just had the magic touch of greenlighting the right movie, a sports like general managers, like he's got, he or she's got the magic touch. And what happens, Bill, in these professions is because it's so unconstrained and there's no playbook and there's no feedback quality, you get these just kind of arbitrary unwritten rules that emerge to fill the vacuum. And I think those rules are extremely counterproductive and no one really bothers to unpack them, right? And if you did, I think you'd realize there's not much validity behind them. So quickly, I think two, the two that jump out to me are one is groupthink and two is fixed mindset. So if I was to like boil, and it goes back to the question I asked at the beginning, if I was to boil down the industry's issues as a whole, it would be the industry succumbs to groupthink and it dramatically succumbs to fixed mindset. And I don't think that does anyone any favors. And in fact, it suffocates talent that probably ex would have existed otherwise. When you're referring to groupthink, are you referring to making, uh, and I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive or one means not the other, but I'm just trying to get in your head for a second. Are you talking about like, analyzing a company together or are you talking about we all find ourselves in a suit taking notes on the next gordita and no one <laughs> says what the hell are we doing right like in what way are you referring to groupthink it's all of the above it's really it is benchmark hugging it is how we go about our day-to-day -day job it is trying to you know just do what everyone else is doing information gathering not you know no original thought everyone kind of roughly doing the same philosophy, the same process. It's all of that. Anywhere you look, I think, in this industry, you see groupthink at play. And I think a big reason why, it, somewhat paradoxically, is there's no constraints, right? Yeah. Yeah, you might notice there's like a study that was done about playgrounds. If you have a playground with a fence around it, what happens? You know, people kind of go, or kids go around and explore the edges and whatnot. And if you take that fence out, everyone gathers around the middle, right? Because it feels safe. I think that there's an analogy there to investing in that the fact that it is so unconstrained and there's no like constraints at play and no playbook, it actually causes everyone ironically to like behave the same and no one to look different. And Paul Black, I know, you know, our president always says, if you want different results, you definitionely have to do something different, right? Yeah. Yet that's uh, obviously an issue here. I 
find today to be a very interesting day to be having this conversation, to timestamp it, it's March 5th. And like I said, I consider my work family FinTwit. And here I see a lot of people are buying a lot of the same stocks. And I guess one that is ringing out, and I am not saying that this is a bad buy at all. That is not my point. And I please don't get it misconstrued, people. But like Costco is a name that is really coming across a lot of people's feeds and a lot of people that I respect. And maybe it's a really good buy. Maybe it isn't. I don't really know. But I find a couple things about that name interesting today. One, when it was going up and it was at this price, I didn't see everybody pounding the table to buy it. So like in my head, I'm kind of thinking, okay, well, how much of this is just anchoring to a higher price and how much of it is, okay, well, this is pulling back a little bit and now it feels cheaper to somebody. And then somebody says, I'm going to buy it. And then people say, oh, maybe Costco is a good buy here. And it's like, to your point, a group think social proof type thing going on in people's heads. And then people are all long a similar name. So knowing the ingredients of the Gordita is how you show that you know more about the culture and methodology of innovation at Taco Bell so that mm -hmm. you can provide like this really deep thesis on the Gordita R&D spend and <laughs> returns. And I just, I'm not trying to take shots at anybody at all, but I, it's something that I think about a lot because I see it in myself too where it's like, okay, well, I'm on social media, which is by definition social. How much of this is my network telling me something? How much of it is my own thinking? It's hard to decouple those two things at times. It is. And you know, we like Costco. We've owned it forever. So we can get to that one if you'd like. But I do think your broader point is definitely very topical. It's funny. It's Anytime we interview someone now, right? We ask one of the questions I, I used to like to ask is how have you evolved as an investor? And why I say I used to is now we just, you get the same answer. It's, you know, I used to pay too much attention to valuation. Yeah. I always underestimated the total addressable market. I always overplayed tail risks. All mistakes people talk about is mistakes of omission. I didn't buy this stock and it went up 400%. And so you have to be careful, right? It's conditioning from a market that's been one directional. And if you're a human, that's the case. If you're an algorithm, you know, and then if you've been an algorithm born in the last decade, you've been trained that way. So when you get constant like one directional feedback, yeah, I think you have to be careful about over extrapolation. Yeah, you know, on the other hand, there's like a very valid to say there's no like brownie points for creativity, right? You yeah. Know, like, you know, you look at Visa, right? Everyone owns it and has owned it and it's done very well and continues to do well. So there's lots of those kind of paradoxes in investing that you have to think through. How concentrated is your book? Like how many names are you guys running? Thirty to forty names. Okay. Yeah. And typically equal weight or Top heavy or how does that go? It depends on the market environment. You know, I think there's sometimes where there's like a smaller tail of interesting investments and it might make sense to concentrate more. But if everything looks roughly comparable, it'll kind of gravitate towards equal weight. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I've been thinking about you talking about conditioning and I've been ruminating on some of Munger saying that he's like a very good buyer, but he's not a particularly good seller. Hmm. And the thought that I've been sort of thinking about lately is. I think that maybe part of the reason is if you take Visa, for instance, when that was spun out, it was clearly a good business. Now, I was too dumb to see it or wasn't. I mean, that was back when I was underwriting loans. So maybe I just wasn't. I'd like to think I could see it, but that's totally <laughs> not true. That's just overestimating my own abilities. But if somebody saw that the business would be much bigger down the road, 
then you could make that buy and ride the business growth. And that's your margin of safety, right? And then when you're correct, the market is going to heap a larger multiple on it. And I think that in order to really allow capital to compound, you need to be comfortable, or I need to be comfortable. I don't know. I shouldn't talk in you, but comfortable with the market assigning a multiple to a company that has now realized the vision that you sort of underwrote. And maybe you wouldn't pay your underwritten realized vision multiple, mm. but that doesn't mean it's not worth it, right? That doesn't mean it's not, it's a sell at that point. It's just at that point, you've really won. So why truncate your wins? I think that's maybe how Buffett and Munger think about that. I'm not I'm not no, sure, think, but that's what I've been thinking through in my yeah, in my yeah, head. No, I think I think that's right. I mean I think it's a balance, right? You you know, the worst thing you could be is engage in false precision, right? Thinking you know the exact right price to pay for a stock or the exact intrinsic value. But you do have to have some framework, right? If things do get crazy, at least you might not want to sell a name, but maybe you trim it or manage position sizes accordingly. But again, I think a lot of it's also time frame. You know, I think people, and maybe social media hurts this, but one of the ironies of investing, I think, is if you're trying to make money all the time, you're less likely to make money over time. Hmm. If you're trying to time every cycle and get in and out, I just think the more decisions you make, the more room there is for error. So I think you have to kind of balance that when you're thinking about valuations. And I know it's lots of debate about value growth today. Yeah, well, that's always more fun for the headlines than it is in reality, right? I think so, yeah. Have you been influenced at all by Marathon, the way those guys think, like capital cycle theory? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's I think, one of the better books on investing. You know, I think um, it's funny. I, I, I don't know what you think, but all the great books about investing are traditionally value investing books, right? I think that everyone's been taught that way. And as a result, I think value investing has... And again, some of these lines, I think, are totally, the people draw the lines too bright, right? Like in the end, growth is a component of value. I think, you know, you and I probably agree on that. But value has kind of been steeped in this like intellectual discipline, right? Like you're yes. exploiting like mean reversion, like recency bias, time arbitrage. So it makes sense, right? Whereas growth, I think, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Like yeah. people think, oh, you're just overpaying blindly for good companies. But I think when the books are written on growth investing, it'll be understood that at least the quality growth, that's the stuff we do. You're exploiting just a different set of biases, right? It's anchoring. It's career risk to some extent. It's change blindness. Do you mind expanding on that? Because I'm not sure that I understand how like, so if you're saying anchoring, are you saying that people are anchoring to older valuations or how big businesses used to be able to get and now the rules are slightly different? Is that where you're going with that? It's part that, but it's just part how people model companies, right? I think it's if you're in 2007 and Amazon, I, don't, I forget the number, let's say they're growing 25% and you go to your boss, your PM and you're an analyst, junior analyst, and you say, you know what, 2019, I think Amazon's still going to be growing 25%. You know, it's like you're going <laughs> to yeah. be laughed you're out You're going to get room, kicked right? out of the you're, room. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> and so that's, the, it's just that it's, we call it like extrapolating fade. You know, you take recent results and it's very hard to like have an imagination kind of that doesn't, you're just almost intrinsically like motivated to take model out in detail for a few years and then fade it, right? It's hard to say five years, 10 years, 15 years, what's the growth going to look like? Obviously, most of the value is in that tail that you're just arbitrarily fading away. So I think that notion of anchoring has created an inefficiency for growth investors. Now, 
of course, I can cut both ways at some point in time, like imagination, you could argue in some pockets of the market has probably gone from an undervalued trade to an overvalued trade. People might be overimagining things in certain pockets of the market. So I think that's kind of just decomposing some of those behavioral issues or biases and understanding kind of where the market is, is probably more productive than you know, some of the discussions you hear out there. Yeah, I think that to your point on sort of like how it gets tough to figure out whether or not the outcome is the result of good process or just sort of the result of playing in the right pond or whatever, with growth investing as I perceive it, a lot of the value is in terminal value. And by definition, if rates were to come down, you would think terminal values would go up all else equal, right? So it mm -hmm. has been before I sort of opened my eyes and listened to what people were trying to hit me over the head with a hammer for years, I should have listened earlier. But I somewhat discounted that and I discounted people's results because I viewed it as somewhat an interest rate outcome, right. which was wrong of me to do, but that's what I did. And then two, I also think that like I was so fearful of terminal value that I actually let myself get intrigued by near-term cash flows and totally discounted the terminal value risk that the near-term cash flow multiple implied. Right. And I think that that's probably why when Mike said those three businesses that uh, were <laughs> cl like classic tech value, that's where I think I sort of had flashbacks. And uh, you yeah, know, we'll the see. risk. Yeah, the risk when you're modeling decline, right, especially in technology, is you tend to t think linear linearly. So if a company grew 5%, you say, okay, it's going to be tough. So it's like 3, negative 1. It's never like that, right? It's like yeah. 3, negative 20, negative 40, right? So like you're going to always overestimate that decline or underestimate that decline, again, because of that anchoring dynamic, especially in markets where there's like feedback loops and network effects and such. Do you think that some of that also has to do with the business starts to unravel and then the morale within the company starts to unravel too? I mean, I, I'm thinking through just sort of the cultural mm. lens that you look through the world at. I mean, trying to turn around a shrinking entity is not a very fun thing to do. Yeah, it can spiral. I think you have to know, I mean, this is the tricky part, how much of a company's culture is a function of the performance, right? I mean, this is like the halo effect idea, right? If, if a company's doing well, it tends to be described as having a good culture. People are getting the cause and effect the wrong direction in, in many cases. So I think you have to be able to detach cultures that are purely a function of, and it's really not a culture in that case, right? A mindset that's a function of a company being at the right place at the right time versus something that's truly at the core of its DNA. When you're meeting with management teams, has it gotten to the point that your firm rep precedes the meeting to the point that you can say like look this is what we're this is what we're really focused on right we want to come in and have a culture discussion or do you i guess how do you make sure that management teams aren't almost prepped for the questions that you're going to be asking you know what i mean yeah. like cuz you guys are well known now right i would think it's on one hand management teams would welcome the conversations that you want to have on the other they may know how to sell to you a little bit better than they used to yeah, that's a fair point. And there's a balance there. You know, a lot of companies do ask us for the questions we're going to ask. And you know, with some companies, we we're comfortable enough with them that we know we can kind of read through the lines and understand if they're just kind of reading off a script or not. Whereas others, you maybe want to be a little more cautious on sharing those questions. So it's a mixed bag. I, I do think there is an art to it. There is like what the answer to the question is, but there's also an art of just kind of reading the answers and reading between the lines as far as kind of what's behind it. And the follow-up, you know, it's really the follow-up questions to that that gives you a sense of if there's meat underneath it or it's just it's more fluff have you found covid makes it 
more difficult, I would assume, right? Being, I, Do you find face-to-face is helpful to read body language and ask follow-ups and things of that nature? No question. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's just, there's subtle cues, right? All of these, culture is a soft thing and being on the company's headquarters, walking around, seeing how people are, are looking when the CEO walks by. I mean, there's just lots and lots of subtle cues that you can't replicate over Zoom. That's cool. Have you studied like, do you ever do stuff with body language psychology studying and stuff like that? We've tested it out. Yeah, we've we've had a few firms come by and, and tell us things, and it's always funny because it's like something I'm doing, like steeple pose, which shows I'm <laughs> defensive. I'm like, oh shoot, I've been defensive my whole life, I guess. <laughs> so this but, is how I talk to my family. What do you exactly, mean? Exactly. No wonder my wife's mad at me. No, it's um, we're just, but you know, I, you said our brand is well known and whatnot. Like we're still, t- yeah, in the second inning as far as understanding culture. It's you know, I think we've come a long way, and we have a playbook and. I think maybe relative to others, we have a head start, but um, there's still so much to do and so much to learn. Something that I think is really cool about the letter that you sent me about the WCM platform is you said that you've disrupted the industry by flouting the unwritten rules. Do you find that uh, within your firm, I got to think it's a point of pride on how you go about your business, right? And how the embracing of a mistake, not the encouragement of a mistake, right? But to treat a mistake as a learning opportunity, I would have to think results in much better retention and camaraderie and ultimately a sustainable, I guess, cultural edge, right? I'd like to think so. And and now I look back, disrupting the industry is probably a strong word, but I, I do think it's something we pride ourselves on. And effectively, when you say platform, what I'm referring to, when I say platform, what I'm referring to is you're taking groupthink and fixed mindset which is kind of the inefficiencies of the industry and and flipping them on their head and saying, let's think different and get better. So those are the core values of the research team, thinking different and getting better. And yeah, I think it stands out in the industry. It's funny, especially the fixed mindset. It's funny when you bring people in from other firms who've had experience and they come to a meeting and, you know, Mike or myself or or Pete Hunkel or one of the PMs, we're just talking about mistakes, like very vulnerable, you know, lots of vulnerability, just talking about the mistake we made and what we learned from it. And it's like, whoa, that wouldn't have happened elsewhere. To me, it's just dismantling a lot of the theater, right? You said pomp. I think that's a great word. Like, it's not about trying to show other people you're smart. It's just let's try to get better. And I like to say that our team, that if you're not cringing at the work you did five years ago, you're probably not getting better. So hmm. it's, that's a good little acid test to get, to go, uh, to go see how, how, you know, what is your kind of improvement in reality? Do you measure that like day to day, week to week, or is it just sort of quarterly reviews? I mean, how do you sort of measure progress in that realm? Cause it is soft, right? How are you getting better is sort of a soft question, but mm-hmm. it's evident from, listening to you and Mike and it's Paul, right? Mm-hmm. Paul Black, yep. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's evident that it's an ethos that clearly works over there. I'm just curious how you make sure that it's actually occurring. Yeah, it's hard. So you need a culture and you need some sort of system because as I mentioned with the Taco Bell anecdote, that pull towards like busyness and like expiring knowledge, as Morgan Hassel puts it, like that's gravitational. Like if you don't have checks and balances and a culture, like that's going to be your endpoint. It's it's being like everyone else and having a fixed mindset. Yeah, we talked about constraints. So I think you have to have some artificial constraints. Like we have a twice a year we do a re- reflection week, huh? Where we just kind of everyone's got to turn off the screens, turn off the quotes, turn off the news flow, and just reflect. And so we have this concept internally we call return on time, which is basically 
It sounds so simple. It's like, are you spending your time wisely? It sounds simple, but in this industry, it's deceptively hard for a lot of the reasons we talked about with feedback quality and whatnot. So, yeah, I'm a big believer. I, th- I don't know who it was, Michael Lewis or maybe Kahneman. You know, they had, one of their quotes was, like, people waste years of their lives because they're not willing to waste hours. Huh. And so I think that reflection week, auditing your return on time, how did you spend the last six months of your time? How did you get better? Did you think different? Show me examples of that. I think that's the best way to make sure that we maintain that spirit because you know, as you grow, as you scale, I think there is a potential regression to the mean on some of those fronts. So that's a, you have to stay on top of it. We have to set the tone uh, from, the, from the top down about showing mistakes and, and it's showing vulnerability and staying humble. But I think you also need some sort of system. Do the analysts get to weigh in on whether or not you've grown? Oh, yeah. So it's oh, like yeah. a 360 process? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty collaborative team. I think we try to, as much as we can, like try to keep a flat hierarchy and have people call out analyst PM distinctions, hopefully are less kind of relevant as they are maybe potentially other firms. That's cool. Does somebody come in or how did you come up with this idea? Oh, it's just a lot of iteration and, and, and te- it's the test and line. Yeah, people, I drive people crazy because I'm just willing to test things and experiment and you know, a lot of them don't work. So probably not sensitive enough to disrupting people's workflows with experiments, but you know it's just the basic mindset of of um, getting better and how do you do that? And I think if you want to get better, you have to have a mindset of reflecting and doing postmortems on your investment decisions or your non-investment decisions, and just having a obviously a trust level, I and mean, that's where the culture comes in. Having a trust level where people can separate the idea from the person, and it's not an insult when you say like, "Hey, that was a mistake." And it's not like we're hardcore. It's not the radical candor stuff you hear about where we're just calling people out and rating people <laughs> yeah. in, in real time. Yeah. But it, it's an element of trust. And you know, understand we're all in this together, right? Like if you get better, if you make me better, if you think different, if you make me think different, that's our only hope at like sustaining success. How does uh, like idea generation bubble up? Is it just from the analysts for the most part? Do people have coverage over there? Or is it like the freedom to sort of roam... Getting back to this, uh, putting up fences around the playground, mm. is it is it coverage verticals or is it mostly generalists? Because you all in the higher positions are generalists, right? Yeah, we're all effectively generalists on the team. I mean, there's a couple people who have kind of small corners of the market that they over-index to, but we're big believers in this notion like pattern recognition. Yeah. So history might not repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. And so if you believe that, you're, you're doing yourself a massive disservice, like not studying history. You just see certain patterns emerge you know, across industries, across sectors, across regions. So I think a lot of the variant perceptions we have are just connecting dots between two industries, two companies that if you were a specialist kind of structure, you just never would you connect. So, so yeah, I mean, there is like soft coverage list, but we do want, you know, we're not a believer. You know, and I've seen this before. If you just have someone who knows more about banking than everyone else. They're just going to come in the room and overwhelm everyone else just with knowledge, right? And everyone else is going to sit back and say, oh, I guess you know, this person's right. Uh, it's hard for me to challenge them. I don't have enough context. So having a common line of sight across the companies while having you know, sensible kind of coverage uh, responsibilities is the balance we're trying to strike. You know, my favorite line that you wrote in the letter, let me find it. I think it says, few things are as dangerous as an analyst with an initiation report and three expert network calls under their belt. I thought, that I have found myself in that exact problem, right? Or that exact situation. It's like, oh, I get this. And I have to remind myself, like, I'm certain I don't get any of this. I just need yeah. to figure out the questions to ask. 
I need to give proper attribution there. I think that was non-gap who said that. Oh, yeah? I don't know if I footnoted him, but that's his take, I think, which is it's brilliant, right? And I think, you know, it's a challenge because as you get more resources and can afford things like export networks, you lose potentially some of that scrappiness, right? Like that, I don't have access to anything, so I just got to like be super scrappy. So in a way, like you have to guard against that as you have success and you grow. How have you uh, guarded against that? It starts with self-awareness, right? It's those return on time audits. It's the reflection and saying, look how much time I spend on expert networks this quarter. That's exactly what you know, I'm saying. I shouldn't, I'm not to say, I mean, they're useful and all that, but am I losing some of that scrappiness? And, you know, I've toured around with things like artificial constraints. Should we just stop using X, Y, or Z for three months to kind hmm. of rebuild that scrappiness? Mixed views on that. But, you know, I think at least just thinking about that and experimenting <laughs> with it and tossing the idea out there gets people thinking. Go knock on doors and let me know how it goes. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do that. Old school. <laughs> yeah, I like that. How, what was, uh, what's like your favorite memory of, of when you were a scrappy analyst? Do you have one? I know it's like a weird question, but like, did you have a, like a favorite investment that you made back when you were like doing all the scrappy stuff on your own when something like really unlocked for you? Mine was when I thought that I unlocked Buffett's airline thesis and that turned out to be a massive mistake in my life. Well, not really. I got out in time, but it could have been bad. How did you unlock it? Well, I listened to what Phil Ordway said at Manual of Ideas in his presentation. And I thought to myself, this guy's either insane or pretty smart, and I need to figure out whether or not he is. And it sent me down a rabbit hole of studying the airline industry that I didn't think that I would get into. And I mean, I think a lot of people cite this common book that was written about Delta, but it was really about the entire airline industry. And I think that it was that and then reading some of about how Southwest went about their business, trying to figure out what the ultra low cost carriers, how they attack the hub networks and why the hub networks exist. And just like really understanding where people's narratives were completely wrong. So one thing that a lot of people like to say is they like to say, well, now that there's consolidation in the industry, there's pricing power. And if you actually look at the data and Phil is the one that put me on this, there is more competition per route now than there ever has been. Part of the reason is these hubs now have hit a scale where they can move the planes around to the profitable networks or the profitable routes as necessary. So just sort of decoupling a little bit of the narrative from reality and then looking at the returns in the business, I sort of think that what they thought that they saw was a consolidated industry that you could now underwrite average earnings in. And then I think that the credit card networks were the cherry on top where you had improving capital needs that people maybe were not fully understanding how important those credit card networks were. And now sure. that now that you've seen them raise capital, like United did that raise with their uh, mileage program that I can't think of right now, but like that was wild when I saw that broken out you know, and how Goldman structured that, you start to see, at least internally, the accounting. Now, I don't think that you can actually spin that off. And right. it's more valuable in the actual airline. But it was just kind of interesting to see all that. And then uh, I knew I, that I knew the industry when I could listen to a call and know like which analyst I thought knew their stuff and which analyst I thought sort of wasn't doing their homework. Yeah. Um, and that's when, that's when I sort of felt like I knew something. 
Yeah. I mean, I think scrappiness can come in lots of different forms, right? I mean, I think one of the things that I recall is when one year, this was six, seven years back, maybe a little longer, you know, we went to China and we didn't meet with any companies. All we wanted to learn was about this thing. It was still relatively early, which was WeChat and how WeChat Tencent was going to kind of move into payments and leverage their messaging platform. And it was, we just spent a lot of time with people who use the product and developers and partners, people we just kind of reached out to directly as opposed to the sell side broker sponsored, you know, 30 company over six day trip or you're meeting CFOs who aren't telling you anything, right? I think when I say scrappiness, I think there's a, again, that gravitational pull towards like busyness and conflating busyness with productivity. Like it, I can't stand when someone says, an analyst says, you know, I met 26 companies over four days. It's like, okay, I, what, what was the return on that time? Yeah. The insights did you come up with, right? And I think people take too much pride in just being busy and it's, they're not thinking about the numerator and that return on time kind of dynamic as far as insights and obviously ideally some sort of portfolio actionability. So that, I think that was a good example of, you know, you didn't need any resources. You just needed to kind of have an element of scrappiness and getting out to China, of course. But once you were there, it's just kind of on the ground research. I know you didn't rely on one broker to do like a company tour, but did you rely on intermediaries to introduce you to people or was that there just- There were a couple yeah. just people that we knew, like, yeah, that we just kind of reached out to someone or introduced us to someone else and you kind of just connect the dots organically. So what did you, when you went over there, I mean, this is six years ago, what did you find? We found that this you know, WeChat payments was going to be a big deal. And it was just starting to ramp and you're seeing some articles here and there about it, but it was still, people thought it was maybe a couple of years away. I'm sure you know this, but you know China emerging markets, one of the mistakes we made for a long time was I talked about pattern recognition. We had a blind spot as far as like applying developed market patterns onto emerging markets. Hmm. Oh, let's find the Walmart of China. Right? Yeah. And let's build a, a whole framework around retailers and how they evolve and percentage of GDP, where they peak, et cetera, et cetera. And you apply that to China and you think, okay, let's find a few retailers here, the next kind of $100 billion retailer. And then you find out that e-commerce just leapfrogs brick and mortar, right? And there is not going to be a massive, massive brick and mortar retailer, pure play brick and mortar retailer in China. That was one of the lessons we learned many years ago was, especially as you do more in emerging markets, you have to recognize that, be sensible with the pattern recognition, but don't just blindly apply them. Now, this may sound silly because if you can't apply it one way, how could you apply it the other? But it seems to me just from reading that China has almost like leapfrogged like if you were to start where we are from scratch, mm -hmm. it might be closer to what they have than what we have. So then the question becomes, well, can we apply like where they are today and sort of say that maybe we're going there? And I don't I don't think the answer is yes, because of legacy fleets and sort of the way that everything is set up. But are there lessons that you think that you can reverse apply or does the cultural difference or structural impairment or impediment sort of... uh preclude that. No, I think you're right. I think if you were going to draw patterns, it would be in that direction, especially in the digital world where, you know, China just, they, people didn't have those entrenched habits of kind of going to the mall once a week, or they just kind of were born, especially just born in the mobile phone era and used it for everything. And so you have these super apps and whatnot emerge. And yeah, if you look at the roadmaps of what Facebook and Snapchat are trying to do and other companies, like it's effectively the 10 cent playbook. So I think you have to see where is that applicable. And I think there were some nuances as far as how China developed, why like Tencent has that type of position that are not going to be the case in the US. But I do think directionally, when you think about the future of commerce, retail, even media, live streaming, you know, social commerce, they're just China is ahead of the curve there. 
and then you have to kind of break down some of those cultural issues you mentioned and saying, okay, is social commerce going to be a huge thing in developed markets like the U.S.? Some of those will be yes, some of those will be no, but I think you're right as far as which direction that arrow should point. It's very cool to watch these companies that, you know, I'm uh, now when I'm speaking, I'm thinking I spend a lot of time looking at media assets in general mm -hmm. and seeing like Twitter getting closer to trying to become a little bit of a, not like a closed loop per se, but keep more of the economics within the business, seeing like Facebook create this podcast, right? I haven't been on Facebook in a while, the blue app, because it just, it turned into sort of politics and stuff that didn't mm -hmm. make me very happy. And here, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to promote this podcast? Because it's something that I care about and I'd really like it to succeed. And sure enough, like top of mind is Facebook. Like I got to go on it. Right. And, right. and realizing how these businesses have become the rails to commerce that I guess this is what people were telling me four or five years ago. And I was saying, I don't have the vision to know how can I possibly know it's going to turn out that way. But the way that attention seems to trend towards assets and then the uh, when you couple the scale on top of those assets, it's very, very interesting to me. Specifically, I guess the three most like interesting businesses to me would probably be Netflix right now, probably Disney and Twitter would be the three that I'm like kind of obsessed with. But it's for that reason, right? It's something about scale plus attention. And it's just wild to see play out because I never thought the businesses could get this big and this powerful and command this kind of mind share. Yeah. And no, I think Tim Wu, if you're familiar with him, he, yeah. wrote, he wrote a good the book, Attention, the Attention Merchants. Merchants. Great yeah, book. Yeah. 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 So we had him in the office a while back and he's great. He just went to the, uh, to the White House. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we had him before the antitrust thing took off and, you know, was, he had a lot of interesting things to say, but, but I think he was dead on as far as kind of the, you know, what these companies, where they were going to end up. Calling them digital utilities is probably not that far off, right? As far as kind of the importance and how they've embedded themselves in our lives. So yeah, I think utilities are often kind of viewed as a pejorative term as far as multiples and whatnot go. But I think factually speaking, that's what a lot of these companies are evolving into. Yeah, well, the nice thing is they don't require capital in the traditional sense, right? It's all through exactly. the income yep. statement. So once it drops yep. out, it's all free cash flow. So that's a little bit different than a utility. I mean... Not once you do the adjustments in the cash flow statement, but on the income statement, it's quite a bit different. Do you have an industry that you enjoy the most or do you just enjoy looking for patterns? I guess I don't want to say either or, but is there something that like has I, your- Yeah, I enjoy- Other I, than Taco I think, Bell. Yeah. Taco Bell is number one. No, I think the patterns are fun. You know, I mean, you can see, for instance, we own a lot of healthcare companies, hmm. but if you actually- dig a layer deeper, what they are is industrial business model. Huh. So you're basically marrying an industrial moat while capitalizing on the tailwinds kind of that you see in healthcare. So I think those are, that's where it gets fun is when you can draw, and not all the companies we own kind of fit these frameworks, but when you can kind of draw these connections and see something that the specialist doesn't and understand like, hey, why this is durable, whereas you know someone might look at that and say, yeah, this doesn't look sustainable. That's some of the more fun stuff we do. When you're finding, so like a healthcare company that has this sustainable mm -hmm. tailwind, and I don't mean to keep going back to culture, but I think it's so uh, important in all your communications that I've seen or heard, yep. like how do you assess the metagame that these healthcare companies are playing or like whether or not, let's say you have, 
this is going to be such a dumb question, but it's the one I have. So you have two like pretty similarly positioned companies. How do you guys think through digging through like like what are the nuanced questions that you're thinking about? It's going to be situation specific, but to get you to the answer of like which horse do I really want to bet on with which set of jockeys? Yeah, I mean it's the answer you'd expect, which is depends, yeah, it right? had to be. There's no way to give an answer to that question, <laughs> but that's like the most fascinating question to me. Well, I'll give you one. I think in like fast moving dynamic industries that are still kind of in their early stages, I think you have to put a premium on adaptability. And I guess that that might be an interesting topic. Why are we focused on culture, right? I think we think it's a subset of what you might call compounding knowledge, right? Again, I talked to Morgan Housel and expiring knowledge. I think what we're trying to pursue in addition to all the day-to-day bottom-up work is, are there fields of compounding knowledge that we can find, right? And I think investing to me, you know, it's really just a series of judgment calls. Right. And I think those judgment calls I've come to believe kind of boil down to just a few types. I would say four types of decisions that drive a lot of alpha or most of the alpha. And two are about the present and two are about the future. Like in the present, it's you're looking at a company, it's doing well. Is it sustainable? Mm-hmm. You're looking at a company, it's not doing well. Is it temporary or is it fixable or is it structural? Take the future. A company is going to face challenges. You know some of them you don't. Like, are they going to be able to navigate that? And then a company's going to have opportunities. Some you know, some you don't. Are they going to be able to capitalize on that? Right? So you just take those four decision types, and then you say, can I, as a firm, as an analyst, just on a micro basis, bottom-up basis, over decades, consistently make those right when everyone else is looking at the same set of information? Probably not, right? I think as the time frame goes longer and you have any sense of humility, like the odds are going to start to work against you, especially since challenges, opportunities, they come in different forms, shapes. So I think if that's your whole framework, I think you can have success over three years, five years, seven years, maybe 10 years, but then the odds work against you. So then you got to, what we try to ask is, okay, if that's the case, can you find fields of knowledge that can improve your odds, your hit rate on all those judgment calls? And so I think that's where culture comes in, is if you apply a cultural lens to each of those four decision types I mentioned, you have a much better chance of being right. At least that's our hypothesis. And especially with culture, especially with the future, right? Because I think people, I think analysts, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, I think we spend too much time trying to predict the future in a point sense. Like, let's try to figure out the exact challenge that's going to come across this company, or what's blockchain going to mean for this company? And again, I just think the odds of you getting that right, I mean, you should do the work, try to have a view, but the odds of you getting that right in a vacuum over a long period of time is very low. A different view, a different lens is they're going to be opportunities and challenges. Does the company from a cultural lens, really the DNA, do they have the ability to navigate those challenges, sidestep those landmines, capitalize on those opportunities? I mean, that's your, people talk about margin of safety with valuation. In many cases, many ways, I view culture as the ultimate margin of safety. And Take Amazon, right? Like you look at Amazon and I might have the years wrong, but 2007 or 2006. Like, could you have predicted AWS? No, definitely not. Probably not. Maybe there were five or six people who saw it coming and knew it was going to be a juggernaut. Could you have predicted that should something like infrastructure services come along, Amazon would be quicker to capitalize on it or pounce on it than Google, Oracle, IBM, et cetera? Perhaps, right? I think that's a more knowable question to ask. Um, you go to China, you go to China Tech. We talked about Tencent. Like, could you have predicted that when the market shifted to mobile, 
that Tencent, it would have been hard to predict WeChat and how big it became, but could you have predicted Tencent would have managed that transition better than some of the other companies like Baidu because of its culture? Perhaps, right? So it's, I think that putting your emphasis there and trying to get collectively kind of improve those odds on those decision types, to me, is a worthwhile pursuit. It's hard to do. There's no shortcuts. But to get back to your question, I, th I think that's why we view culture is so powerful. And in those fast moving kind of early stage industries, it's it's really hard to predict how it's going to play out over five, 10 years. Like I think everyone loves to say they're long term, but it's hard to see the long term. But if the company is adaptable, they'll do a lot of the work for you. So I think that's why it's such an emphasis for us. I love that answer. That answer is fantastic. <laughs> it reminds me of, I had a podcast that's going to come out next week with uh, this woman, Liz Simi, and I have been internally debating morality in investing because I have a position in Philip Morris and Altria that I don't feel great about owning, like fundamentally, but I find them to be fairly high quality businesses, even if they're facing customer headwinds, to say the least. Sure. And I had asked, what's the point of ESG or, you know, morality and investing or whatever? And she had responded and she's really dedicated a lot of her time to ESG. Her encouragement to me was to think about ESG through a cultural lens and that the fundamental reason that I should care about something like ESG is not necessarily to draw the distinction between cigarette companies should never be in your portfolio, which she does not, right? She runs like a true mm -hmm. ESG fund, so she's not going to include that. But what she got me thinking about is who are the types of people? This is one of the reasons that I really like Markel and how they hired Sarab. For them to go to Google and for Tom to meet Sarab and for Sarab to share some of what he learned at Google with Tom, and then for Tom to be open-minded enough to say, okay, well, maybe I should go back out to Google to learn a little bit more about that. And then for them to be open-minded enough to, like all of them, not just Tom, right? But for Sarab also to come to the table and say, like, this is maybe something that we can join two really different ways of looking at the world, but we could come together. I'm in Google, you're in Virginia. I do tech engineering, you do insurance underwriting and equity research. Like for me, that was such a high signal hire to me for a number of reasons. And even if I wanted to be the least charitable that I could possibly be to Sarab, I would say, well, he wanted a, a job in asset management and that was it. And I just know that that's not the answer. Right. And I know that it's a bigger answer. And I've been really fortunate to know him and I've been included in some things that he works on. And like, I just love the way that he, you talk about humility and you talk about somebody that I think approaches the self improvement game in the right way, shape, and form. And the way that he has fostered open conversations by putting parameters around them that make people feel safe. Like, that is something that I just overweight that relative to everyone that I hear talk about Markel. Now, I don't own it right now, but that's maybe a mistake. And I've been thinking about that. But like when people ask, you know, do you think they still have it and whatnot? Yeah, I do. And a lot of the reason that I do is knowing some of the players and knowing how they think about things and just seeing how all those tea leaves come together. I think it's a marriage of sort of these concepts, right? So to your point, like 
could I have known that 2020 was going to come out and really do damage to the insurance industry? That's probably knowable that at some point you're going to have a catastrophic year. Do I know how exactly they're going to respond? No. But do I, can I think through how they're probably having internal conversations and how they foster debate? Yes. That's something that I think I can get my head to. And then some of it's being able to ride through the down period and say, I've trusted these people to do their job. Now I got to let the bet that I laid sort of play out is sort of how I think about it. Yeah. And I think you're right on. And culture is, it's connecting dots, right? There's no, at least we haven't found any quantitative way to just like reverse engineer it. You just have to see certain things and connect those dots. And then I think, you know, use, rather than try to predict those point events like 2020, use those for reflection. Like if you have a thesis that is based on a company growing its mode with a strong corporate culture, like if that wasn't in evidence in 2020, then your thesis is probably busted. So I think you have to also think about looking back, spending time seeing if the company lived up to how you expected it to behave during times of volatility. Like, and you need that. Unless you had that feedback, like those types of ups and downs, it's very hard to say does a company in like a 10-year kind of great kind of market and great environment really have a great culture or are they just riding a wave, right? So I think you really have to hone in when there is issues and challenges and external challenges. Make sure you, you spend enough time reflecting on how things played out. It's been amazing to see how adaptive some companies are. And there's the part of me that like is the traditional value guy that says, oh, well, when you look at the multiples of some of these growth companies, that's so silly relative to these other multiples. But the other side of that is look at how resilient they prove themselves to be and how adaptable a lot of them prove themselves to be like, that's amazing. Right. And then the direct relationship with a consumer, I think, was really elevated this year or in 2020, as opposed to when you had to get something through somebody else, that somebody else tended to be Amazon more often than anything. It was a wild thing to live through. Yeah. And it goes back to where we started, like the positively spring-loading your starting conditions, right? Like Shopify, which you know, we've owned. And they've had lots of kind of wins behind their back, whether it's direct-to-consumer commerce, which they, of course, helped enable, but there were also other building blocks at play. And then COVID, right? Like it pulled in their view of the world, but they really capitalized on it, right? I mean, it's clear as far as their culture and what it was and what it stood for. And, and you saw it play out in real time in, in Q1 and Q2 of last year. And that's really, when we talk about adaptability, that's just a great asset test to evaluate it. Did you read Mike Nongap's write-up about Toby and he like compared him in what his gaming persona would be and how Shopify sort of like was within that game. And then Toby responded. That was awesome. That was, um, we talked about not yet, but that was uh, one of the better pieces I've read in the last four or five years. Yeah. I think he nailed it. Yeah. That was awesome. Right? Like that's the thing that's crazy is how smart so many people are. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm the, I couldn't have put that together. There's no way. Yeah. And it gets to the root of the company. You know, it's not, yes, there's tailwinds and you can look at payments and fintech and shipping and look at these things, all these individual things in isolation. But what Mike did and what we try to do is you try to get to the root cause and foundation of the company, the DNA, like what's going on here. And I think it's, I think Toby responded to him saying like, I think you nailed it. Yeah. It scared me about how, how well you nailed it. <laughs> Am I that transparent? <laughs> how do you hold something like Shopify? So I guess to start, I think Shopify has been one of those rare, really just kind of magical scenarios where a company, just by solving their customer pain points, kind of introduce new network effects or at least feedback loops into the system. 
And when you get those, you don't get those too often, but basically you get the best of all worlds. Your revenue growth curve gets extended, you're deepening your core moat. And then if you think about counterparty kind of relationships the right way, you're generating more goodwill in the present with your customers while introducing more pricing power in the future, mm -hmm. right? So all that goodness kind of has supported Shopify over the last five, seven years. Now to your question about how do you hold it, I think as valuations evolve, your thesis needs to evolve too. You know, I think a lot of people talk about thesis. I think people talk about creep too much in this industry. Like theses always evolve, right? Like even audit your winners. It's invariably like the thesis you had is not exactly the reason the company did so well, right? It was something else you didn't predict. So for Shopify, I think you know, as valuations have evolved, you have to start asking different types of questions. So now it's over the next five to seven years, it's can they solve the, the merchant pain points that they haven't solved yet? And those are potentially, I mean, definitely shipping for one. Like, how do they help their merchants keep pace with Amazon? And then demand. Like, right now, merchants struggle with demand. Google, Facebook are the two companies that are doing it the most. Can Shopify insert themselves into that? And that's a different dynamic. There's things that they do that are going to help them with that. But I also think it's going to introduce potential tensions into the model. So you just have to wrestle with that. But you have to ask the new questions, right? I don't think you can just anchor to... Hey, this is a great kind of engine for e-commerce. I think that's probably recognized at this point. So now you have to say, can they evolve and adapt? And there's lots, lots of questions you can ask underneath that to arrive at a conclusion. It's hard not to give somebody like that company the benefit of the doubt, given how well they've executed through this entire process. And what a great test in a company that like that, that's going to require all companies need to be flexible. But I think that company particularly proved adept at being flexible and solving the pain points, like you said. It's interesting. I, I think uh, Twitter is going to go through it, right? You know, what they laid out, I think they're going to go through their own little version of it, and we'll see if it works. But it's very cool when you see that inflection point in ethos, in a, at least in the way that people are thinking. And with uh, Shopify, I don't think it was really an inflection point. I just think it was people waking up to who Toby is. Yeah, and they, I think it, you know, in that case, it does run in the DNA I don't think there's enough written or studied about kind of managing ecosystems and what a lot of people call platforms. That's an overused term, but just there's an art to it, right? Like, how do you manage all these different counterparties? It's a lot of complexity and some simple decisions can actually have a lot of unintended consequences. So that's like, that's stuff with Shopify and other kind of these kind of ecosystems you really have to laser in on and just understand how they think about it because there are trade-offs. And if they're aware of those trade-offs and are very cognizant of it, I think you should give them a longer leash kind of as I think you alluded to. Hmm. That's very insightful. I'm going to have to ruminate on that for a little while before <laughs> I come up with something smart to say. But I think that that's... Uh, that makes sense, like understanding the weakness. I mean, Shomek had talked about it too, but when you said it, it it's sort of like, I don't know, I have these conversations and they re-trigger thoughts, you know? Yeah, I mean, maybe I can give you I mean, one example is, you know, it seemed very logical as an ecosystem to treat your best customers, give them special treatment, right? Like, let's say you're Alibaba and you have power sellers, like, let me treat them very well and give them special terms and really focus on them kind of sensible in, you know, in the point at the point. But what you do is you also potentially create disruption in that tail, the smaller tail of merchants you have. And maybe then they don't get enough volume on your platform and then they look elsewhere to companies like Pinduoduo or other companies in China. So it's like all these trade-offs you have to make. And as your ecosystem gets more complex, as you have more counterparties, which Shopify might, if they start to do more in the consumer realm, there are trade-offs that you have to think through. There are tensions that you didn't have to deal with before. Like Shopify, like they've had, I mean, they've done phenomenally well, but it's that alignment has been so clear, right? It's all about the merchant. 
help the merchant, help the merchant, and the company will do well. You start to introduce developers, partners, customers, then those easy decisions start to have tension underneath them, right? They're just incredibly thoughtful at thinking through this. But, you know, I think that's when you think about like a dynamic company evolving. These are the conversations you have to have. And and even from a cultural lens, they're the good guys now. Yeah. Will that always be the case if they start to like do more in other areas where they have to kind of create tensions? Maybe, yeah, that just becomes a little bit of a challenge too. So, yeah, I think that's uh, this notion of kind of ecosystem management. It's, you know, one of my... One of the topics I find most interesting, I feel still under-discussed or at least understudied. I think the thing that's going on in my head when I'm listening to you speak about that is when you have seen a company execute for so long and do it so well, and now it's faced with new questions, as an analyst, how do you think through sort of saying like, no, they're wrong here? I would think in that scenario, they've earned so much deference that it's almost hard as an analyst or a PM to say, this is the time that they're not right on this. But it's so important because that insight is what actually is probably going to be the insight that leads the numbers that everybody else realizes like, oh boy, something else is up here. That's the really important insight, I think, in holding that entity, at least at this valuation. Yeah. I think culture to me, to a large degree, is how much of a leash do you want to give a company, right? When there's change, maybe when they face an issue, is do you want to give them time to figure it out and maybe stumble along? Or do you want to cut bait right now? And I think that's where, if you have a lot of conviction in the culture, you don't, I think that decision becomes clearer and gives you a little way to calibrate that, right? As opposed to just kind of doing it in a vacuum. And I think that's much more difficult. I had liked Wells Fargo. I have to confess that. But I liked it as a turnaround story. And so far, uh, and not story, I shouldn't say that. I like Sharf. I think Sharf is smart. He hired this guy, Scott Powell. I think Scott Powell's resume is worthy of deference. And so far, I think that that's playing out. There are other issues with the business that I probably could have understood better. But a lot of the people that I respect were yelling at me. They were like, you, I don't think you want to get into cultural turnaround of this magnitude, right? And when you're talking about managing an ecosystem, that is a Herculean task sure. to turn around a business that's going through that much. I guess it's there's so many headwinds from so many ways. So I can totally understand why when I said I think this is a turnaround, people said, no, I, that would just be like a never touch to me. And I think those people were were probably right, even if this one time sort of does work out as I thought, but I have not reallocated capital to it. So I obviously don't believe that I want to be in that kind of soup, uh, so to speak, in the ecosystem. <laughs> How do you think through, do, do you, uh, you mentioned Peter Kaufman, right? He sat down and he read all the big ideas, right? In the science journal and whatnot. Have you done anything like that in your time? Or is that something that you borrow other people's ideas from? Sometimes I look to Shane Parrish for a lot of this. Yeah, yeah, he's great. You know, some of these we build on our own, but yeah, we lean on we lean on everyone. You know, we look for inspiration anywhere we can find it. And there's lots of, you know, some of this new stuff, like it's not necessarily new, but network effects and so on. You're just seeing new people emerge who are under the radar that you can lean on. So I think that's the balance we try to strike as far as building internal IP while also kind of looking elsewhere to people you've talked about already, people you've had in the podcast of learning about new business models and how they relate or don't relate don't relate to the past, uh, but we talked about scrappiness already. But I think you have to try to stay, keep those insights fresh, especially in those kind of more dynamic industries. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would, I would think as a firm, and actually, 
Mike talked about this, to keep the analysts hungry, right? And say, you know, it hasn't always been this way and let's keep trying to improve things. That's got to be something to manage. And I think it would probably be interesting coming back to work when everybody is. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess some people are in your office now, right? But I don't know the extent to which you guys have taken. Do you take junior people on? Like real junior? Or is it mostly people that have been trained a little bit and then they come to join? We take talent wherever we can get it, Bill. Yeah. Uh, no, we're pretty open-minded. We have people who are young, people who are experienced. There's different trade-offs with different. Some people have to unlearn things if they've been elsewhere, whereas if you're fresh, there's a little more training that needs to happen. But no, it's uh, you know, we'll look for talent wherever we can get it. And there's certain qualities that we definitely look for as those starting conditions. But yeah, I think Mike talked about that on his podcast, about how we really try to make sure this is a kind of a founder's mentality here, where people feel like they can come in and break things and, and really have an impact as opposed to kind of staying around the edges and shape something that's already in place. There's a balance there. You don't want to like overhaul everything every year, but creating that sense of ownership at the last offsite we did a couple of years ago, we did like a, Mike did like a 50 page deck on all the mistakes we've made. Hmm. That's all it was just to show that we're extremely fallible and we make a lot of mistakes, but we're better off for it in many ways. That's like the WCM story in a nutshell. That's awesome. I admire that so much because I just think so few people do it that it's really something that I, I think if I were young and talented and was fortunate enough to land there, that's a hell of a spring load to get a career started. A <laughs> uh, lot of people sort of don't end up that lucky. I mean, protect that with everything you guys have. I know you will. Yeah, we try our best. I use the word platform. I, I don't like the word platform, but I couldn't come up with anything better, but it's you try to find great people who are talented, but then plug them into like the opposite of the Taco Bell scenario, right? Take away all the nonsense of the industry and then provide them with compounding knowledge or let them enable them to create compounding knowledge. If you can do that, you get the best out of people, right? And that's all. That's, that's all you can really control. Yeah, well, empower people and then uh, pick them up when they fail, right? And then live mass. You're all over the Taco Bell. I love it. <laughs> well, I uh, I read your I read your letter, and I I know that it meant a lot to you. Yeah, yeah, it's fun to joke about that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure it wasn't to live through. <laughs> you know, I guess I I gotta ask: Is there anything else that you want to talk about? One of the things that's interesting to me, uh, maybe we haven't talked about, is kind of what makes a great investor. What's interesting to me about investing is it requires a set of qualities that are opposing at face value. So you need to be, for instance, disciplined and you need to be flexible hmm. or adaptable. Yeah. You need to have conviction, but you also have to embrace like cognitive dissonance. You need to be able to focus and you need to be able to multitask. And then I think one of the more interesting ones to me is, and I've thought a lot about this lately, is you need to have that grit. Like everyone loves to talk about grit, which is like work ethic and perseverance. But I, also, I think you also need creativity. And I don't think you traditionally find both of those in the same person. Or there's very few people who have both. Because grit, in many ways, is like, give it 110% type thing. Well, creativity is almost the person who gives it 80% or 90%, right? Like, you have to let things flow in. You have to take a step back. There's this notion of, like, creative laziness, which is, like, finding the lowest part of the fence before you cross it. Or instead of just rushing to answer a question, asking, is this the right question? And so that's something, you know, we try to find, but also nurture is like, how do you draw that balance between grit and creativity? And I think creativity is a, another under-discussed kind of trait of investing that doesn't get enough attention. And I don't think we've necessarily figured out the secret sauce there, but I think it's something you have to think about if you truly want to have original insights and original thought. 
uh, you have to enable build a team and enable them to kind of be creative do you journal at all i do i do i have found that that helps somebody told me once to just walk into the office and just start writing in the morning and don't stop for like 10 minutes and i would be lying through my teeth if i said i do it every single day but when i do it i find that i'm like much clearer and that I don't know. It's like very cathartic. And the other thing that I think really helps me is I am really best when I'm up in the mornings. And if I can work at a certain time, I find that my mind is much, much better at certain times. So trying to structure my life around that has helped. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think journaling, understanding when you're at peak productivity, when you're at the most creative, some people it's morning, some people it's night, when you're best at focusing. In the end, it's just self-awareness, right? I think if we were to hire for one quality, it'd probably be just keen, keen self-awareness because I think you could do a lot with that. And journaling, if done right, and you actually keep it up, which is hard. I look at my career, my progression, and it's a function of just journaling, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and now making new and different mistakes, right? It's just a, it's an iteration over time. But unless you have that ability and system to reflect, I think it becomes much more difficult. Yeah, the nice thing about a journal is you can't go back and you can't have revisionist history, right? It's like it's actually written down and you can actually see what you thought. You can actually see how you thought about it. It's the same reason I I enjoy when I actually have a reasonably good idea to write it up because even if I don't take a position, it's nice to see whether or not I think that it played out as I thought. And then I've also gotten in the habit when I get serious about something of trying to pre-mortem it. Mm. Pre-mortem is something we do as part of our theses. I think it's incredibly valuable. And that's actually probably if I was to look at my career where I made the biggest leap was just truly being able to own the pre-mortem. I think if you do that as like a risk section, it's not the same. Hmm. If you really truly like simulate and visualize what could go wrong, it's just all the defensiveness when things go wrong kind of melts away because you've kind of owned that possibility. But yeah, I agree on the journaling. And the fun part of journaling is you can call out like Mike Trigg when he starts to say, oh, I said this. I'm like, no, look at your journal. Uh, <laughs> we try to institutionalize journaling here. Uh, nope. No, sorry, Mike. You said that. Uh, you got it wrong. Uh, and that's always fun. I had something similar. I was talking to somebody about Nordstrom and I said, remember when we missed it? And they pulled up, you know, a screenshot and they didn't miss it. And I was being revisionist to say the least. Uh, neither of us had the confidence to think that they'd make it through. Now, do you consider like a Twitter as like a form of journaling for yourself? Yeah, I, th- you know, I guess, yes, I do. I overtweet. Okay, so that's my weakness. But I guess that what I consider Twitter as much of a journal, if Twitter had a really good search function, boy, what a journal it would be. Right, and right. same in the, in the direct messages. But I'm hopeful that those are coming. I consider Twitter part journal and part networking machine. It's been a very weird experience for me because I enjoy people. I enjoy face-to-face. I was never really that into social media. And here, almost everything that I have created, like content-wise and my network, has been because of Twitter. So sometimes people will say, like, why do you talk about it so much? And it's (laughs) like, well, it's pretty much my life. Like, I don't know. There's, you know, it's clearly not, right? My wife and kids matter more, but... It is impossible to decouple what I have become as an investor and what I'm doing professionally from Twitter. I mean, they are the platform that has enabled all of it. Yeah. And to be able to shout about 
some of the stupidity that I had. Like if I go back in my early feed and some of the ideas that I have, you know, you talk about making yourself want to cringe, right? (laughs) And I'm really grateful for it because I think that I read somebody's thread once and he said, like, I've made every mistake that there is to make in, in investing, right? Like I've bought into cyclicals at peaks. I've tried to time financials. Like he went through all of them and he was like, and thank God they happened because if they didn't and I was successful on that, I still might be looking for those things. And for me, I try to not be defensive when people come at some ideas I have. I can't help it. And I also can't help myself sometimes from dunking on some of these like really momentum (laughs) stocks that I think people are sort of like, I don't know, who knows? We'll see when at the end of the day, when this score is tallied we'll see how it all works out i would probably be better served just shutting my mouth in certain instances but on balance i think it's been a huge benefit and seeking alpha has done it for people vic has done it for people i just think a community where you're sort of sparring mentally and accepting that pushback is the spirit of the game as opposed to something to offend you I am an island, so to have that has been invaluable to my life. If I was at a firm, I would want that kind of environment. And do you view this, like, the podcast as an extension of that? Oh, yeah. What I want to create with the podcast is, like, I want to have an investor's series of interviews, right? I want to have, like, real professional investors sit down and either listen, or I'm probably going to do some sort of written extensions from these things. And something that Whitney Tilson had done back in the day that I liked was the art of value investing. And he basically just like compiled quotes from value investor insight that he had and some other things. I just want to provide people like a good map of really interesting thought. Because I don't, what am I going to tell you about investing that you don't know? Like, I can't tell you anything that you don't know, but I might be able to have a guess that you find really interesting. And if I can contribute to the financial community in that way, like, that's awesome for me. Yeah. I mean, I think you do a great job. I mean, I think the notion of keeping these conversational as opposed to, I'm, I'm sure I talked a ton, but, you know, as opposed to like just one way and lowering kind of the just kind of the spiel element or kind of all that and just making it a conversation, I think gives you a better window into how people think. Yeah. Which is in the end what you're trying to do. Right? Yeah, I think so. And I and I think too I think that there's like this mystique about a lot of investors that people want to put up. And I think it exists everywhere. I mean anywhere that there's a lot of success, it's like, oh, is that person even human? And what I have found more often than not that the person is human. And I think something conversational is relatable in a way that a lot of formats are not. Yeah. I struggle with the ego thing. I just don't know if if you have any sort of self-awareness around the history of the industry, the base rates, who the star managers were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and you know, where m- many of them are today. I just find the whole superstar ego thing very comical with that kind of backdrop of how, the, how few people have sustained durable success over multiple decades, yet you have a three, five-year good period, and all of a sudden that ego develops. That's actually... Coming from Morningstar was very helpful. Hmm. Why so? So you got a window into the fund kind of realm and analyzing mutual funds and seeing who the superstars were at the time and seeing the ups and downs and just understanding that this is hard, you know, and the base rates are decidedly against you as you extend that time frame. And so once you have that outside view, I think you just almost definitionally have to stay humble. It's sort of terrifying to me because I'm out here running my own capital and like 
I'm not competing against you per se, but I mean, there are trades that we would be on the opposite side of. Right. And it's like, sure. On one hand, I'm proud of what I've done. On the other hand, I'm terrified that I'm just the part of the sample that's gotten lucky. <laughs> and I'm more terrified of that than the former. Like, I, you know, I don't trust that what I've done is replicable. I think that's actually a good quality. I mean, I think that that's the thing that keeps me thinking about whether or not I don't ever want to be the guy that's satisfied with how I've done something. I think that the day that I do that is the day that I'm about to get waxed in the market. But I also don't really trust an index. And that may not make a whole lot of sense to people because I think over time indexes might make sense. But like I don't, there's something about a momentum buying strategy, blindly not caring about valuation that I find offensive, even if when I really break it down, it probably does make sense why the momentum exists. I just don't know that I could trust an index if things went really wrong. And I think that for me, getting through the trying periods is far more important than outperforming in the good periods. Yeah, no, we'd agree with that. No, for sure. But I do think people get too carried away in that thinking there's one way to do things, right? In the end, it's about, to me, it's about alignment. Have a strategy or philosophy that aligns with both your belief system, but probably more, even more importantly, your temperament. Yeah. If you want to have a 10 stock, very concentrated kind of portfolio all in one sector, I mean, that's fine. You just got to be ready for those 40. Can ask yourself, can I really kind of sit through those 40, 50% periodic drawdowns that'll occur? And if you think you can, or you know you can, then that's totally sensible for a lot of people. I think the behavioral finance people where they get that wrong is... There's a little bit of like laughing at everyone else type thing. It's like, how did you behave during Q1 of last year? Yeah. You kind of, did you live up to your ideals or not? And if not, maybe you should think more about portfolio construction. So I just think it depends on the person or the team or the firm and just making sure that alignment's there as opposed to thinking there's just one, one way to do things. That's the part that I'm the most proud of actually is like, I was adrenaline doubt. I would be totally lying if I said like, oh, I was totally zen in March when everything was <laughs> crashing. Like that would be bullshit. I barely slept and didn't stop thinking about things. But <laughs> I really did like the whole reason that uh, I, I don't know how much you know about me, but I mean, I had an uncle that died like a super tragic death and it changed sort of my family's financial outlook. And what I said to my wife is, you know, I was underwriting commercial loans at BMO Harris. It's a great place, but I was never going to, if I sold at a bottom, it would cost me more than I'd ever save at BMO, right? So like the goal here is to figure out how to get to the finish line. And then if I need to get another job, I'll figure it out. But I think this podcast might be my ticket to getting sustainable income. So I am really proud of the fact that when March came, I stepped up and changed my family's financial situation in a time that was really trying. Now, I go to bed every night and I think, well, am I just the idiot that got bailed out and took too much risk? <laughs> and, but, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think that actually, I, I think objectively, I listen back to what I said at the time and I really do think that I managed it, but I, I live in that constant fear of like, are you just the survivor and your bias is not reality? I don't think it's ever a question I'm going to be able to say yes or no to. I agree, but I also think 
it's a terrific quality to have. I think if you lose that, you'll just lose a lot of that edge, that motivation and that hunger. You know, I think that's a great, well, it's difficult to deal with that dissonance. It's probably the right trade-off you want to make. Yeah, I think it's the only one that I can make to get over the finish line. And the other thing that I've really had to, to sort of push myself away from is, I mean, I idolize Buffett, man. I like name my third kid after him and everything. But when he stands up, in front of a class and says, I would have had 50% of my net worth and my best idea. It's really important for me to remind myself, like you're listening to a true savant Mm -hmm. and I am not him. And I bet pretty big on a pretty contrarian idea last year and it worked out, but like that does not need to be every idea and it doesn't have to be how I always run my portfolio. And I've, I've learned a lot from, Guys like David Gardner, and I've started to study Ron Barron a little bit more, and some of these guys that I think have really, really good growth mindsets. I don't quite know how Ron Barron opens his positions, but David Gardner, I think, opens much smaller. And like I look at how he's done it and how he's succeeded, and it's like, okay, there's maybe a, a middle ground here that I can figure out for myself that I can live with. I don't need to be either one of those guys. I can just be me. Yeah. And that's where the journaling and reflection helps, right? I think some people probably have a knack for sizing and making big bets. And other people, they'll audit you if you audit your track record with any honesty, you'll see, look, my lowest weights actually had the best performance. So I should just equal weight it. And I think a lot of that stuff's very kind of just personal and based on temperament. And some people get too excited when you have a new idea and they make it a big weight. And then two months later, they're not as excited about it. So it's just having that self-awareness and reflection, I think, helps you kind of shape things in the right direction over time. Do you do any therapy at all, or are you just like born with this? Born with, <laughs> I don't know. I told you, I did my midlife crisis 10 years ago. I, I don't do count <laughs> looking at a at a chalupa and taking <laughs> notes. I mean, I actually do. I understand what you're saying. Uh, you just seem very, um, you seem, your EQ is high, and I, I just didn't know if that's something that you think that you were born with, or if it's something that you've worked on over time. I'll get my wife on the podcast next. She'll, she'll answer that question. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, your wife can call my wife and they can complain about both of us. All right. And talk about the kids. That's right. My wife will ask me something and I will say yes to her. And two seconds later, she'll turn around and say, what did I just say to you? And I will have no idea. (laughs) But I know that I was present when I said yes. I think we are very alike. (laughs) This is my my read on this conversation. Well, man, uh, I enjoyed it. You have anything else you want to talk about? I think we hit on a lot. It's been a blast. It's fun. All right. I'm glad that you came by, man. Uh, I have uh, a lot of respect for your firm from what I've heard, and I've heard great things about you, and you lived up to it. So I thank you for joining me on this. Thanks, Bill. Keep it up. Mm-hmm.